This is Rose Kalalazade, barrister, and I have been asked to give a seminar on the topic of bail. I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land upon which we walk and work, wherever you may be, with this recording being made on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. The purpose of this seminar is to provide an overview of bail to assist with preparing an application on behalf of an accused. This seminar will be broken down into three parts. The first part will deal with the basics of a bail application step by step, including some of the tricky aspects of the legislation. The second part will deal with some of the recent developments in case law relating to bail. And the third part will deal with some short practical tips. Before I commence, if I could give you a short disclaimer, and that is this. The law in relation to bail is a beast that is ever evolving. The Act is a relatively young Act, and there are often new cases dealing with interpretation of these new provisions. Further, we are in an age where so-called justice reforms are plentiful, and the new Act has already been subject to change many times since its first incarnation in 2013. This seminar does not purport to cover every single detail and development in the law of bail. It is always prudent to check the New South Wales Case Law website for the latest cases to do with bail and to stay abreast of legislative amendments and other developments in this area of law. Moving to part one, the basics. A good starting point is to determine whether an offence is a show cause offence. A show cause offence is one where the accused must show cause as to why his or her detention is not justified. The onus is on the accused to establish this. In practice, what that means is that when the bail application is made for a show cause matter, the accused is the first party to be heard. How do you determine whether an offence is a show cause offence? In practice, it will often be contained in the police paperwork by way of the words show cause appearing under the H number in the top right hand corner of the court attendance notice issued by police. However, it is prudent to always check for yourself and not rely on what is a computer generated assessment of whether the offence is a show cause offence or not. The offences to which the show cause requirement apply are contained in section 16 capital B of the Bail Act. I will not repeat those in this seminar, however the most common show cause circumstances you may come across are where an accused is charged with a serious indictable offence while on bail or on parole, or where the accused is charged with a serious personal violence offence and has a previous conviction for a serious personal violence offence. The definition of serious indictable offence in section 16 capital B of the Bail Act is the same as the definition as contained in section 4 of the Crimes Act, that is, an indictable offence that is punishable by imprisonment for a term of five years or more. 
The definition of a serious personal violence offence is an offence that appears under Part 3 of the Crimes Act that is punishable by a term of imprisonment of 14 years or more, or an offence under Commonwealth law or the law of another state or territory that is similar to an offence that appears under Part 3 of the Crimes Act. Examples of offences that fall into that category include murder, manslaughter, aggravated sexual assault and kidnapping. Practitioners often raise the question, what is a relevant consideration on show cause? Importantly, there is no exhaustive list of factors that are to be taken into account when evaluating whether an accused has shown cause, and in practice, it is often a combination of factors that together might show cause, such as the weakness of the Crown case, the strength of the bail proposal, the health of the accused, or the need for the accused to be at liberty for various reasons, including care of a family member. The recent case law to do with show cause will be addressed in the second component of this seminar when dealing with the new developments in bail law. Moving to the unacceptable risk test and bail concerns. Section 19 sets out the unacceptable risk test, that is, whether there is an unacceptable risk that an accused will fail to appear at court for the offence, commit a serious offence, endanger the safety of victims, individuals or the community, or interfere with witnesses or evidence. Importantly, Section 19, Subsection 1 of the Bail Act clearly states that if there is an unacceptable risk of any of these, bail must be refused. Many practitioners and courts are still using the antiquated terminology that appeared in the first incarnation of the new Bail Act, that is, that unacceptable risks can be mitigated. That is no longer the case. If there is an unacceptable risk, then bail must be refused. What can be addressed, or mitigated if you prefer that terminology, are bail concerns, which appear at section 17 of the Bail Act. Those concerns replicate the risks that are contained in the unacceptable risk test, that is, failing to appear, committing a serious offence, endangering the safety of victims, individuals or the community, or interfering with witnesses or evidence. When assessing those concerns, the matters to be considered appear in Section 18 of the Bail Act, which include matters such as the accused's family ties, the strength of the prosecution case, and the accused person's history of compliance with orders of the court, such as bail or bonds. The list of factors in Section 18 is exhaustive and the section provides a useful checklist for matters that may be relevant to your client's bail application. Moving now to conditions that can be imposed. The court can impose unconditional bail. However, in most cases, the reality is that the court will impose conditions. It is important to note that bail conditions can only be imposed in certain circumstances. This section is often overlooked by bail authorities who will impose a condition, for example, that an accused report to a police station 
where there has been no identified concern that the accused will fail to appear or impose a condition that is unnecessarily onerous, such as daily, daily reporting. This section is often overlooked by bail authorities who will impose a condition, for example, that an accused report to a police station when there has been no identified concern that the accused will fail to appear or impose a condition that is unnecessarily onerous, such as daily reporting where an accused is a single parent of young children. The types of conditions that courts can impose are as follows. Conduct requirements in accordance with Section 25 of the Bail Act, where the accused is required to do or refrain from doing a particular thing. For example, not approach or contact an alleged victim, to report to a police station, to refrain from entering the suburb where the alleged offence is said to be committed, or to live in a particular location. Security conditions in accordance with Section 26 of the Bail Act, where the accused or one or more other acceptable persons deposit or agree to forfeit a specified amount of money if the accused does not appear before the court as required, a character acknowledgement in accordance with Section 27 of the Act, where an acceptable person gives an acknowledgement to the court that he or she is acquainted with the accused and regards the accused as a responsible person who is likely to comply with the bail acknowledgement. In practice, this is often a parent or a partner of an accused or someone who is considered as close to the accused and a responsible person. An accommodation requirement in accordance with Section 28 of the Bail Act which can only be imposed if the accused is a child or for the purposes of entering a residential rehabilitation facility. It should be noted that this is not the same as a conduct requirement that requires an accused to reside at a certain place on bail. An enforcement condition in accordance with Section 30 of the Bail Act that is imposed for the purposes of enforcing compliance with a bail condition such as the accused presenting themselves to the door when the police conduct a curfew compliance check or undergoing drug and alcohol testing where there is a condition to not consume drugs or alcohol. It should be noted that an enforcement condition can only be imposed by a court and not the police when granting police bail. Further, it can only be imposed on the application of the prosecutor and not on the court's own motion. Should you wish to propose an enforcement condition on behalf of your client, it should be done in a way that invites the prosecution to request such an enforcement condition so as to comply with the requirements in Section 30 of the Bail Act. An enforcement condition should only be imposed if it is reasonable and necessary in the circumstances in accordance with section 30 subsection 5 of the Bail Act. Consideration can and should also be given to the effect of an enforcement condition upon others such as a late night curfew check when there are small children or elderly people also living at the residence.
pre-release conditions in accordance with Section 29 of the Bail Act. The Court can specify certain conditions as pre-release requirements, that is, conditions with which the accused must comply before being released, for example, surrendering of a passport. This list, which is exhaustive, is contained at Section 29, Subsection 1 of the Bail Act. There will be more information about proposing bail conditions in the third section of this seminar that deals with practical tips when applying for bail. Before moving to the recent developments in bail law, I just want to draw your attention to a few tricky things that can pop up every now and then, to which you should cast your mind when preparing your bail application. The first is this. The prosecution may apply for a stay of a bail decision in accordance with Section 40 of the Bail Act in relation to certain offences such as murder or sex offences involving children. What that means is that if bail is granted, the prosecution can apply for the decision to be stayed on the basis that an application will be made to the Supreme Court for a detention application which in effect means that the accused remains in custody despite the grant of bail. Two questions arise from this. One, how do you know when the prosecution is going to apply for a stay? And two, in what circumstances can the application for a stay be made? In response to the first question, it is often indicated on the police paperwork that a stay is applicable by way of a short note that appears under the top heading on a court attendance notice. Further, it really should be incumbent on the prosecutor to tell the accused's representative that such an application will be made. It should be on your radar if the offence with which the accused is charged fits within those deemed as serious offences in Section 40 of the Bail Act. As for the second question, that is, the circumstances in which the application can be made, the most important aspect to keep in mind is that it can only be done if bail is granted or dispensed with for a serious offence on the first appearance by an accused. The stay application cannot be made if bail is granted on a second or subsequent appearance by the accused. In those circumstances, if you are aware that an application is going to be made, it is prudent to advise your client that the bail application should be adjourned and the application can be made when the matter is before the court on the next occasion. If an application for a stay is made, you must be careful to check that the prosecutor has written approval from an authorised officer to make this application. It cannot simply be done by the prosecutor on the spot without the appropriate documentation as evidence of written approval. Section 40 provides the definition of an authorised officer. A second tricky question is what to do when you wish to make a bail application after a previous application has already been heard and refused. In accordance with Section 74 of the Bail Act, there must be grounds for a further release application. And that is the first threshold that must be overcome. There are several grounds outlined in section 74. 
such as the accused not being legally represented the first time or where there is fresh material or a change in circumstances since the last application. Moving to part two, developments in the law. In this part, I will draw your attention to six cases. These being the cases of Zeta, Tikamamalia, Mukalaleti, Hurigan and Barr. In DPP and Zeta, 2016 New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal 247, His Honour Justice R.A. Hume observed that judgments of single judges of the Supreme Court do not often lay down anything of precedential value for bail authorities and that each bail application presents its own unique factual matrix. So, while you may choose to refer to previous published decisions of the Supreme Court, be careful to not rely upon them as precedent. The case of DPP and Tikamamalia, 2015, New South Wales Court of Appeal 83, is the leading case on the two-step test, where the court emphasised the importance that the two tests, that is the show cause test and the unacceptable risk test, are not conflated. And that appears at paragraph 24 to 25 of that judgment. In the case of the Queen and Guntunas, 2018 New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal 40, there was a hearing de novo after a detention application was made to the Court of Criminal Appeal three weeks following a grant of bail from the Supreme Court. In this case, Her Honour Justice Fullerton, in allowing the detention application and refusing bail, reiterated the position that the show cause test and the unacceptable risk test are two separate tests and it is important that the two tests are not conflated. But there are matters that may impact determination of both of those tests, such as an evaluation of the strength of the Crown case. That can be found at paragraphs 36 to 37 of that judgment. In Mukalaleti and DPP, 2016 New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal 314, the court outlined the basic principles that apply to the show cause test at paragraphs 51 to 56. In summary, those principles are as follows. First, the show cause test and unacceptable risk test are separate questions. Second, the Parliament did not enumerate factors relevant to show cause as opposed to what was done in relation to the assessment of unacceptable risk. Third, there will be inevitable overlap between factors that may go to whether cause has been shown and that inform whether an unacceptable risk exists. Fourth, cause may be shown by a single powerful factor or a powerful combination of factors. Fifth, a gloss should not be placed on the words of the Bail Act. In particular, an applicant should not have to show special or exceptional circumstances in order to show cause. And sixth, a single judge decision of the Supreme Court has little or no precedential value unless there is a discussion of legal principles. In DPP and Hurigan, 
2017 New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal 170, the court, in considering a de novo application to the Court of Criminal Appeal, where the accused was charged with a number of show cause offences, said that significant delay is not, of itself, sufficient to show cause, and that appears at paragraph 11 of that judgment. In Barr, a pseudonym and Director of Public Prosecutions, 2018, New South Wales Court of Appeal 47, there was an appeal by Barr of a refusal of bail in the District Court after an oral detention application was made by the prosecution following pleas of guilty to sex offences. The majority in that case held that the prohibition on multiple bail applications in Section 74 of the Bail Act, whether they be multiple release or detention applications, does not apply where they are made to different courts, that is, say, an application in the local court and then another in the district court. Further, it was held that, in relation to the requirement in Section 50 of the Bail Act requiring reasonable notice to be given to the accused of a detention application, that the issue is not whether the accused has been given reasonable notice, but whether the court or authorised justice is satisfied that such notice has been given. The majority also held that where a matter is a show cause offence, both the show cause test and the unacceptable risk test must be satisfied as two distinct tests in order for an accused to receive a grant of bail. Justice McCallum wrote a dissenting judgment, which is also worth reading in your own time. Finally, a further development to note is a recent amendment to the legislation with the insertion of Section 22 capital A, requiring that bail be refused for certain terrorism offences unless exceptional circumstances exist. Moving to part three, practical tips when preparing for your bail application. Some of this will sound obvious, but when you are running a busy practice or appearing in a busy duty list, it can be hard to cover all bases. As a template or guide to how to approach preparation and obtaining instructions, consider the following. Ensure you obtain facts, record, and any other information upon which the prosecution relies, including letters from police officers. If there has been a breach of bail, obtain the substantive facts for which bail had been granted. Check whether the matter is a show cause offence, remembering to check what it says on the court attendance notice and also Section 16, capital B of the Bail Act. And if it is a show cause offence, remember that the onus is on you to show cause as to why detention is not justified. Check whether the matter is one where a Section 40 stay of decision applies, remembering to check what it says on the court attendance notice and or whether any indication has been given by the prosecution. Evaluate any bail concerns and, if there are any, 
identify which ones you anticipate will be an issue. Obtain detailed instructions on your client's subjective features, including residence, employment, community ties, and health, including mental health, and also your client's family situation. Identify the features of the prosecution case that are noteworthy, for example, whether the offences are serious, or whether there are any weaknesses in the prosecution case. Consider conditions that may be proposed, or might be imposed despite your proposal. Ensure that you obtain instructions on whether your client can comply with the possible gamut of conditions that may be imposed, even if they are not conditions that are being proposed by you, in case any issues need to be raised with the decision maker at the time of imposing the conditions. The following is a list of potential conditions that could be proposed or imposed. The list is not exhaustive and conditions will vary from matter to matter, depending on the factual matrix, but the goal should be to address the bail concerns in a way that is least onerous for your client. Conditions may include residence, reporting to the local police station on a specified day or days within certain times, a curfew, and consider whether you wish to propose that it is conditionally lifted upon being in the company of a particular person such as a partner or parent, or conditional upon attendance and employment at certain times, place restrictions, security requirements or surety, noting that a property can also be used instead of a cash deposit or an agreement to forfeit, restrictions on associations with co-accused or victims, taking medication as prescribed, attendance upon a psychologist or psychiatrist, or in circumstances where there is no treating practitioner, attending upon a particular GP within a specified time for the purposes of preparation of a mental health plan, surrendering of a passport, noting that if the accused cannot make arrangements to surrender it as a pre-release requirement, you could craft a condition that requires the surrender of the passport within a certain period after release. To not approach departure points such as an airport or attendance at a rehabilitation or counselling service. These are just a few ideas of possible conditions that may be proposed. It will vary from case to case, depending on your client's circumstances. It is always helpful, where possible, to have a written document with proposed conditions on behalf of the accused, so they are clearly set out for the bench, rather than expecting the bench to fashion its own conditions, which may ultimately result in conditions that are too onerous on your client, or worse, conditions that are either easily breached or simply cannot be met. 
We have now reached the end of the seminar on bail and I hope it has been of use to you. As with any application, thorough preparation is essential. Further, as I mentioned at the start of this seminar, given the frequent developments in this area of law, it is prudent to check the latest amendments to the legislation and most recent cases dealing with bail. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this seminar and I am open to any feedback, corrections or amendments. So please do feel free to contact me, Rose Calalazade, by email on rk at forbeschambers.com.au.